When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. DIY and How Studios presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hey there, Diggers. I am the rock and roll archaeologist, Christian Swain here, and this is another episode of Deeper Digs in Rock. Like usual, I'm behind the mic in San Francisco and all up in your earbuds, and I thank you for inviting me in. We've got a really good one for you today. A little bit of housekeeping and we'll get right into it. As you might well surmise, Deeper Digs is where we dig a little deeper, go a little further with our exploration of rock and roll music, culture, and technology. It's the companion show for the Rock and Roll Archaeology podcast. Today's program is a joint effort produced by Rock and Roll Archaeology with the help of the Avidus Zildjian Company, the makers of Zildjian Symbols. We're on the web, and you should visit us. It's rockandrollarchaeology.com. Podcasts, show notes, social media links, and more. Come on in, hang out with us. Uh, you should visit Zildjian Symbols. That is Zildjian.com. Okay, business handled. Let's do it. Let's take a trip to sunny Palm Springs and meet the ultimate studio cat. Hal Blaine, folks, let it shine, let it shine on Mr. Hal freaking Blaine. He's played drums on something like 35,000 different recordings, including 40 number one singles. He's one of only five session players in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He's got hundreds of gold records and uh, awards out the wazoo. And on January 28th, 2018, Hal Blaine will get a Lifetime Achievement Grammy from the National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences. What's really special about Hal's drumming, at least in our view, on so many songs, his contribution goes way beyond just simply keeping time. Oh, which, by the way, he, he does perfectly. Uh, thank you very much. Oftentimes, Hal's playing is exactly what sets the song apart and makes it unforgettable. The guy just knows when to add the perfect dash of spice. Hal played that booming, heavily reverbed drum that punctuates the chorus on The Boxer by Simon and Garfunkel. He did the shakers and sleigh bells on Good Vibrations. That's Hal opening up the Ronettes' Be My Baby with that irresistible stomp beat that, so he tells us, 
he came up with by accident. We'll hear about those sessions and a whole lot more. We're going with a slightly different format today. Rather than simply introduce it and play the interview, we're going to break it up into episodes, kind of a greatest hits collection. Uh, seems like the thing to do with a Hal Blaine interview. The conversation took place on August 21st, 2017. I basically spent the entire day with Hal. He was beyond generous with his time. Uh, the man is an absolute hoot. He's funny and kind, very accessible, very easy to get along with. Good storyteller, too. So let's do it. Let's meet the one and only Mr. Hal Blaine. Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, Hal Blaine. How are you doing today? Thank you very much. Yeah, I really do appreciate that you came all the way here from whence you flew on the strange day of the eclipse. It is a strange day, isn't it? But it's a perfect time to meet a living legend. Well, thank goodness I'm still living. Yeah, and you just turned 88, I believe. Just turned 88 years old. I'll be 89 February 5th. 2018. Yeah, and then 90 in uh, 2019. So you, you are uh, you've been around uh, this uh, this world believe. a long time. It's hard for me to believe that I was born 29, about 1941 or 42. I think it was. I was going to Weaver High School in Hartford, Connecticut. Yeah, because you're originally from Holyoke, Holyoke right? Massachusetts. Massachusetts, right? Right. But we had moved to Hartford, Connecticut when I was seven. And when I was about 14, I guess, Ringling Brothers used to come to town with the circus once a year. And the circus used to hire some of us juniors and seniors because we were rather big kids. And they called us Rostabouts. Never knew that someday I'd be working with Elvis Presley on Rostabout. Oh, that's right. Just one of those peculiarities or coincidence that happened through the years. I'm sure you have lots of those stories. Oh, God. And that's... What I'm saying is that through the years, there's so many things like that have happened to me that would be impossible to predict. I mean, I was working with people like Buddy Hackett before anyone ever heard of Buddy Hackett. Yeah, before the love bug. Right. <laughs> I was working with Don Riggles, and I was working with uh, this incredible saxophone player who since passed away, and his daughter is married to Shecky Green. Yeah. Another, another great uh, Catskills comedian. sentimental. Anyway, he put a band together for Don Rickles at this new little nightclub that opened on La Cienega, I think it was. And it was called Slate Brothers. The Slate Brothers were all actors and bit players. And we opened up the Slate Brothers with this unknown comedian whose name was Don Rickles. And the first couple of nights, it was empty. Nobody in the place. By the third night, you couldn't get in. The lines were almost around the block. That's how fast it happened for Don Rickles. Really? He was making fools of Clark Abel and, and Lucy and Desi and everybody. Oh, he he, he would insult anybody, everybody. He used to call this little nightclub 
the Jewish trailer, the Jewish trailer truck or something like that. And people loved him. And you know, you know his comedy. Everyone got to know his comedy. He was also a fine actor, which mm-hmm. is what he actually trained for in New York. Uh, before he got lucky, all of a sudden doing comedy. And he was just the nicest guy in the world, just a sweetheart. I loved him, and he because he used. To, I I loved comedy. I've always loved comedy. Well, you've done a little comedy yourself. Yeah. But I, but I, but sitting at the drums behind all these various comedians that I worked with for years, George Burns. I mean, there's so many funny, funny people, and I was just hooked on comedy, and I loved comedy, and I, I felt like a comedian, and working with Don Rickles and Buddy Hackett and these people, I learned so much about comedy and the comedic side of the business. The actors that became comedians and so forth, and actresses that became comedians, uh, working with Lucy. I actually worked with Jaja. Um, I mean, I worked with so many of those people that. that and, but I was just playing my drums. Johnny Angel. Johnny Angel. Johnny Angel. Johnny Angel. You're an angel to me. That's Johnny Angel by Shelley Fabre from way back in 1962, the first number one hit song featuring Hal Blaine on drums. So, rock and roll archaeologists that we are, we are always interested in the origin story. So we asked Hal to talk about his earliest exposure to music. So was was music something in the house? Did your, your parents listen to music? Or? No, there was no music in the house. As a matter of fact... So your parents didn't play. They no. They, they, they didn't encourage this because of their their upbringing and, and I don't know. The family. All I know is that my father used to have a violin case, and it was a violin case with a violin in it. Because we used to laugh in those days about, hey, pop, is there a machine gun in that? You know, those kind of jokes. He brought that from Europe, and he and my two uncles, his brothers were in the hawk shop business for a short time. When that all broke up, my dad still had that violin case. And quite a few years ago, after my dad had passed away, I was given the violin case. It was a wonderful little Italian violin. It was not a, uh, you know... Stradivarius or anything like that, but uh, a Stradivarius or anything. Yeah, it wasn't a Stradivarius... But most in violins in those days were made a la the Stradivarius. Anyway, it was not a one of the multi-million dollar kind of violins. But it was a wonderful little violin. I never played violin. My parents wanted me to because we had a violin. Anyway, I wound up, when I be, was part of the union in the local 47 in Hollywood, I originally started in the union in Chicago. Right, right. Local 10. 
I actually started in San Bernardino, California. It was local 767, I think. Yeah, which your family moved to again because yeah. your father's asthma. Right, that was, was all. told to come out here where the, the, the air was a little drier. Exactly. Strangers in the night, exchanging glances, wandering in the night. What were the chances we'd be sharing love? Before the night was through Something in your eyes was... Now, here's some more of the origin story. Hal talking about his earliest days in that business (laughs) they call show. Let's go back to the beginning. Uh, As we mentioned, you were born in Holyoke, Massachusetts. Right. Uh, And uh, you... I think you first started playing drums back east, right? Before you moved out west. Well, I first started really playing the drums was when we moved from Holyoke, and I was about seven years old. We moved to Hartford, Connecticut for my dad's health. Yeah, because your dad suffered from asthma, right? My dad's health, right, from asthma. And he had received a, a job with the Connecticut Leather Company, downtown Hartford, Connecticut. Right across the street from that store was the State Theater. He was working for Connecticut Leather because we were like penniless. My father was just making enough money to pay the rent and a couple of groceries. Every Saturday morning, he would put me on a trolley with him while he went to work, seven in the morning, and he would walk me across the street and give me a dime, and I would get in line. I was always the first one there. And through all the years that we lived in Hartford, uh, for seven or eight years. Every Saturday, I was the first person in line at the State Theater, and I got to see and hear and witness every name band, every name singer, all the name dancers, the stepbrothers, and all these people. I mean, I got to record with people like Mae West, people you would never even think of or dream of right. as recording artists. So naturally, my repertoire, or however you want to pronounce it, there's hardly anyone that I really did not work with. Anyway, while working in Hartford, Connecticut, well, my dad was working there, and I was attending all of these shows. And I can, it's as if we're sitting there right now. The curtains would open, and the stage would roll out with Betty Goodman's band, or whoever was the band of Tommy Dorsey, Tommy Dorsey, Jimmy Dorsey, Buddy Rich had a band. Everybody yeah. had a band. Every singer, all the singers from all those shows, they would roll out. You could smell the powder from their faces. It was an amazing time. Right. Now that was your introduction to show business. That's really what got me hooked, of course. And it's funny because I mentioned that because. I met Bob Hope one time, and Bob was a a funny, wonderful man. I met Bob, and he had one of the most famous sayings in the world. And I don't know if this ever went out on the air, but he used to say, if these women start wearing their skirts and their dresses any shorter, they're going to have more powder, more cheeks to powder, and more hair to comb. That was one of the funniest things I'd ever heard, you know, and I was a kid. But that was my Bob Hope story. He was just a sweetheart, lived down here, 
had his home up on the hill here, the, tur the Turtle House or whatever they called it, and he had a home in, in Toluca Lake. Yeah. Hello? Hello, Hope. I'm calling from this phone booth to tell you that, and I've tried to get exactly, so now the only thing to do is, see? <laughs> Kelowna, there must be something wrong with this connection. Why does everything you say have something missing in the middle? Use the lifesaver instead of a nickel. <laughs> Hal was born February 5th, 1929, so he missed World War II by a couple of years. In 1946, he convinced his parents to co-sign the enlistment papers, and he joined the Army. He made it through basic and shipped out to the Far East. Anyway, I'm the last guy sitting in this little, this major's office, and he's asked, he had been asking questions of all these people, and what they, how, what they, what they had studied and learned about photo mapping, I think it's called geodesic. I can't remember the terms now. Anyway, he kept flicking this thing, looking at me. Here I am, I was about 17 years old. He keeps flick, flipping this thing and he said, you know, Harold, there seems to have been a mistake made here. He said, I'm really sorry about this. I'm afraid you're going to have to go back to the repo depot and be assigned somewhere else. Well, everyone was being assigned to infantry. Right. Tents, foxholes, that whole terrible military thing. And I said, well, whatever it is, I understand, sir, you know. Uh, and he said, I just can't understand it. But he said, and this says you're a musician. Why would they send a musician? I forget that there's a terminology for that paper. It was like your occupational right, number, right, right. whatever it was. So I said, he said, you know, there's a guy here that plays the trumpet. So let me talk to him for a minute. Mm -hmm. He got on the phone. And he called Lieutenant Santos. I've never heard from him again to this day, from the day I got discharged. And he was a terrific guy. And all I heard was the major saying, no, we have a guy here who's a musician. He said to me, what do you play, Harold? I said, I'm a drummer. And he said, all right, wait right here. He said, yeah, no, he is a drummer. And he's waiting right here for you, thanks. And in a couple of minutes, here come Lieutenant Santos. Now, I was a private. I wasn't even a PFC, I don't think, yet. And he came in, introduced himself to me, said, I understand you're the drummer? And I said, yeah, I play the drums. Where are you from? I said, I'm from Holyoke, Mass. Holyoke, Mass? He said, I'm from Boston. And we hit it off immediately. He was a real nice guy, a real good guy. And he said, can you drive a Jeep? I said, I can drive anything. He said, you're gonna be my Jeep driver. He said, can you type? I said, well, I haven't had a lot of experience typing. He said, you'll learn. And he looked at Major Brooks and he said, this is, we finally got a drummer. And he'll be my, uh, 
I forget the name of that thing that they called it, what's your MO, not MOS, but not MOS. No, I think it is MOS. Is it MOS? I think so, yeah. It was a number of your occupation. Military occupational, MOS, military occupational service or something, or whatever it was. So I guess that was it. So Santos, and he said, call me Santi. Everybody called him Santi. In fact, after I got out of the service, I wrote a couple letters to the Boston Union. I figured he had to be in the Union. He was a good trumpet player. He had a big band, all officers. I was the only enlisted man. And of course, I knew every goddamn song in the world from all the years was sitting and hearing all the big bands. And it worked out great. We, get, we got to make a trip to China, which is a whole other story in itself. Well, I think it's fair to say you were the luckiest son of a bitch in Korea. I was Certainly very, that day. I was very, very fortunate, yeah. Oh. I mean, and I think that says a lot about your career. There's so much of it that just you kind of fall into these things that just lead on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get out of the Army, uh, you go to Chicago, you actually uh, study... I took my GI Bill, which is something that they started just not long before I was revealed. I was eligible. Yep, yep. The GI Bill, where they paid your tuition and your Whatever fees are being paid, it's being paid by the government. Hey, Mr. Tambourine, play a song for me. I'm not sleeping, and there ain't no place I'm going to. Hey, Upon his discharge from the Army, Hal headed to Chicago to formally study percussion. From there, he started picking up work in swing bands. Here's the story. And you went to Chicago to study uh, percussion. And I went to Chicago, right. When I first got out of the service, I went back to San Bernardino, where I had been going to high school. Never graduated. And uh, I was playing a little drums at the time. And I remember the unions. That's a whole nother part of the book. I met the union man who put me in the union, which I don't remember the number of the union. I thought it was seven, 17 or something like that. San Bernardino. By the way, that book is Hal Blaine and the Wrecking Crew, the story of the world's most recorded musician. Oh. I believe it was published in 1990, the original. So you go to Chicago. So I go to Chicago, and I register with Roy Knapp. He was Gene Krupa's teacher. Okay. Now, I believe Gene is your hero. He was my first major drum hero, right. Why Gene over some of the other guys? Well, because he's the first guy that I connected with, sort of. Uh, when I got out of the service, I mean, all the time I was playing big bands, 
When I was with Tommy Sands, I was I was with the Count Basie band. Oh, so you were originally with Count Basie before Tommy? Before? No, with Tommy. Oh, with Tommy. That's okay. how I happened to be with the with the Basie band because Count Basie offered me the band, but that's a whole other story because Sonny Payne was the great drummer with Count Basie, <clears throat> and Sonny. He was a cute little guy, gorgeous little black guy, but he was a horseman. He was a kind of great jockey. And this was all at the at the uh, Waldorf Astoria in New York, mm -hmm. the Starlight Room. Oh yeah. And what happened was that Sonny used to go riding every morning. He got involved with some pretty lady it turned out that this pretty lady was the wife or girlfriend or whatever mistress of one of the head mafia guys in Chicago. And there was a contract put out on Sonny. And Sonny had to leave town right now. I was the only drummer there that could right now immediately play the show. Right. So you took over for some. So I took over, and that's what it was. That's when Count Basie offered me the band. It's a wonderful story because it's, it was impossible for me to say yes. I will say, you know, he had to find himself a drummer. I don't know who it was. I don't know if I ever met who the drummer was or if the date closed. But we had a couple of dressing rooms. We were in the Waldorf Astoria, the Twin Towers. And the minute we were on a, a break, maybe 20 minutes or so, to shower or bathroom or whatever, we would go up to our rooms, which were, our, which were dressing rooms for us, and the guys all had binoculars. I didn't know about this. And they would be in the window looking at the, the tower across the way, and they would they were just, yell things 18 up on 18 and all the, all the guys would be going up to the and they'd be seeing chicks nude or undressing or sharp bathing whatever and uh, that was a whole nother experience in itself in itself, itself it was an amazing time but then I eventually it stopped and we were gone. I didn't see Mr. Basie again, Bill Basie. I didn't see him again until I sort of got pretty famous in Hollywood. So this was now part of the late 50s, early 60s. And I'm walking through the, through the studio. Used to be United Western Studios and I'm walking through United Studios where we did so many hit records of Sinatra's and everybody and I hear the sound of the Basie Orchestra beautiful unmistakable right so it happened that as I'm approaching the the door somebody was walking in and out of that door so you could hear for a minute I knew it was a Basie band 
And all the engineers knew me at Western. I mean, I was a straight guy. There was no drugs. Uh, Ricky, my drum tech, he had drum, he had keys to every alarm in Hollywood. That was Ricky Fauscher, right? Every studio, every, I mean, it was amazing. He'd go into 20th Century Fox at 3 o'clock in the morning, 2 o'clock in the morning, set me up for an 8 o'clock downbeat, that type of thing. Um, that's how well he was known and, and revered. He was a terrific guy. Mm. We lost him several years ago. And uh, anyway, the point is that that uh, that I walked in quietly. I walked in that one door that I had seen open and closed, and I just stood back. There were there was a playback going on, humongous speakers, you know. And it was the Basie Band. I don't remember the song or anything about it, but when it when it all finished, I heard. All the guys saying, whoever's standing around, that's it, we got it, thanks, that's beautiful, came out great, 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 great. I walked up quietly, and I said, excuse me, Mr. Basie, I don't know if you'd remember me. And he said, he never turned around, I've never known how he did it, and he said, with as much drums as you play, Hal Blaine, how would I not know who you were? This kind of thing. I mean, what a compliment I got from Count Basie. Yeah. He's a sweetheart of a guy. Right. And uh, at the time, he offered me $100 a week. I was already making almost 400 I think, 375 something like that. And I explained to him, I said, Bill, there's just no way that I can, you know, take off from this young star that I'm working with. I Which was Tommy Sands. Tommy right? Sands, right. Yeah. And he understood. He said, I'll tell you what I'll do, though, Harold. Harold, he used to call me. He said, Harold, I'll give you an extra 25 a week and let you be manager of the band. I'll give you 100 a quarter a week. And I'm making almost 400 a week. You know, I said, geez, Bill, I wish I could. I'd love to do that. I mean, work with Freddie Green and all these guys, Bill Newman, all these guys that were just so yeah. basic. They were fantastic. The best of the best at that time. Right? And I have a photograph somewhere of me, Comp Basie, and Joe Williams uh -huh. in our tuxedos, smiling at the camera. <laughs> it's a great eight by 10. I hope to hell the kids didn't lose it somewhere. We'll get into some more of Hal's work, but first we had to ask, why drums? He had an interesting and kind of surprising answer to that question. But before we get to that, why yeah. drums? Why did you choose drums? I have no idea. Did they choose you? Well, the thing is, I think that most drummers are show-offs, first of all. Especially from that era that I grew up playing drums. And I wanted the same gene group of slingling drums, which eventually I got. I always wanted my Zildjian cymbals, which were just, I've always called them the Rolls Royce of cymbals. And they were, long before I ever had a Rolls Royce, or two Rolls Royces. 
Anyway, somehow I got hooked on watching the drummers, and I evidently didn't not didn't realize how good my ears were, because I knew every theme song of every big band that I'd ever seen at the State Theater, and I always knew. And I've told this to drummers when I do clinics sometimes. Probably has happened to drummers sitting right here in the, this audience right now. You can go to a live show and see one of your favorite drummers, and you could think, if this guy has a heart attack, I can jump up there and save the show. And they always laugh because they all think that way. Right. Drummers, I'm talking about drummers now. And it used to be the drummers that everyone watched because he had more stuff to hit and bang and click and ding and bang and ring bells and so forth, the tempo blocks in the old days and brushes uh, and all of the effects you could do, which I learned so many of these effects when I was going to school in Hartford, Connecticut, and Weaver High School in Hartford, Connecticut, because they used to take us to certain radio shows. This is before television. We were fortunate enough to go to live radio shows, be in the audience, and watch these guys who were sound effects guys. They could make sounds, and you, I could. I learned how to make a fire, the sound of a fire. So I think a lot of that had to do with the way I made records, because I always, I always called myself a method drummer, because I always wanted to hear what the song was. I don't want to just be smashing and smashing and crashing when some little gal is singing her heart out about being heartbroken or something. you got to play to the song. Exactly. Yeah. And I've always said my drumsticks were like, sort of like my paintbrushes. And as far as I was concerned, I could do effects. Because while I was going to school in, in Chicago, excuse me, the Drum Institute, the... Uh, Roy Knapp's school profession. Back in Hollywood in the late 50s, Hal gets an interesting offer. Boom. I get this job and I work the two weeks with him. It's perfect, works perfect and we go to Hollywood. Anyway, that's where we were working. So on one of the breaks, this some guy comes up to me and he says, hey kid, and he seems to be one of these Dems and those guys. Right. Hey kid, I wanna to talk to you. Can I help you? He said, I got a kid that needs a drummer. And he said, I'm not trying to get you away from your group. But he said, we have, an, we have an audition coming up in a couple of days, and this kid could have a big contract with Capitol Records. And Jesus, you seem to be a good drummer. And I said, well, what kind of music do they play? And he said, well, it's kind of a country band. I said, I'm not really a country drummer. You know, I play jazz, I play pop, you know, but I'm, he said, I've been watching you, watching you, watching you. I don't see you drunk. I don't see you drinking anything. He said, you'd be, you'd be perfect. I'll pay you 75 bucks. It won't take you 15 minutes. 
So seventy-five bucks, I'll be there. Oh, for an audition? So you're going to pay you so to audition? Walk in. Right. Exactly that type of thing. Yeah. So I walk in. It was the Algiers Hotel on Vine Street. It's an old hotel. Very nice people. And I meet these two young guys. One of them's about six three. Good-looking kid, looked like Rock Hudson. And he played slap bass. Go do go do go do go do. The other kid who recently passed away down in uh, Texas, Eddie Edwards, was a guitar player, a little short guy, and he used to sing that song, Who wears short shorts? I wear And so we became instant friends just meeting the I hadn't met Tom yet. I didn't know the name Tommy Sands. Nobody did. Yeah. And so... Eventually the door opens and Tommy Sands walks in. Nice looking kid. And he's going to be a, a big star, they tell me. He just did a big uh, television show that was supposed to have been done by Elvis. But Elvis was in a service, so they hired Tommy. Tommy's manager happened to be a guy by the name of Tom Parker. Colonel Tom. Colonel Tom. Yep. That's how I became involved with with Colonel Elvis Parker later, and yeah. the whole Elvis yeah. thing. And I said, Jesus, you know. So I did this audition. Tommy walked in. I met him. He was a sweetheart. We started talking. We played a couple of little country tunes. Well, my bucket got a hole in it. My bucket got a, a child could play the goddamn thing. It was just nothing. Right, and right. Because Tommy was a disc jockey in Houston. Mm. He had just done a show called The Singing Idol, which was supposed to have been Elvis. So they got Tommy to do it. Elvis was in Germany. And the more I spoke with Tommy at that time, it turned out Tommy's dad, Benny, was a piano player who used to help me a lot because there was an old piano in the hotel where I lived up in the ballroom, which was closed for a hundred years, covered with cobwebs, but it had an old piano, and it sounded pretty good. And he used he used to help. And when I as I was talking to Tommy, he he said something about I said something about I've been going to school in Chicago. And he said, "Oh, my dad, my dad's in Chicago. His name is Benny Sands. Benny Sands." Wow, your father was teaching me the piano. So all of a sudden, another yeah, lucky yeah. break, it just melded. Right. And uh, you got the job, you know, we're opening in three weeks or whatever it was. So that's how that happened. And you were you toured with Tommy for, I think, uh, almost two years, right? Almost, a long time, yeah. yeah. A long time, we yeah. played, we played Hawaii a lot. Oh, they loved nice. them in Hawaii. Oh, we loved them. If their loves on skids, treat your folks like kids. Are your family trees gonna snap? So to make them dig, first you gotta rig. Uh, what do you gotta rig? The parent trap. If they lose that thing and they just... One gig leads to another while playing for Tommy Sands. Hal meets Nancy Sinatra. So um, now through Tommy, you met Nancy Sinatra, right? That's how that happened. Nancy, we were working the Ambassador Hotel, Coconut Grove, 
that's really during those years. That had to be the sixties. Yeah, or fifties. Late, late, very late fifties, maybe sixty. Yeah, fifty-seven, fifty-eight. When I was with Tommy, Nancy was only about seventeen, eighteen years old. She wasn't singing or anything. That's when I met her. There's an album out there called Sands at the Sands. We recorded our show with Tommy Sands at the Sands Hotel. And at one point, you can't miss Nancy's laugh. You can hear Nancy laughing. It's really great. And I've mentioned that to Nancy before. Wow. And she said, honey, you don't know how many takes that took. <laughs> It was well, an overdub. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, she wasn't even in the audience that night. Oh, they just wanted to get her. She had been to the show. Yeah. Anyway, that's what happened. And it was a shock to me, but she was an absolute sweetheart, darling. Uh -huh. And she started traveling with us, along with her mother, Big Nancy. We oh. called her. Yeah, Frank's wife. Frank's former wife. Yeah. It was. That's right. They were divorced. By then, yeah. But Frank took care of her. Yeah. That's how I met Frank Sinatra. Yeah. On the telephone. Some We were in Miami. And I think we were playing the Fountain Blue Hotel. I had already been there with, with Patty Page. I just loved her. One of the great superstars of that day, of that era. And... Uh, my cousin Marilyn lived in Miami, and her dad, Davy Katz, owned a grocery store, and her mom was one of the sweetest ladies in the world. They were, as the trailing off end of our, my relatives were passing on, there weren't many of us left. So Marilyn was always there with her dad, and then her dad died. It's too long. That's too long a story to go even even going to. But anyway, I've always been in touch with those people. They live in Florida. Uh -huh. Anyway, here we are in Miami. So what happened was that they were having, and I've got some great pictures somewhere. They were having the engagement party or the announcement of their marriage. Uh, this Tommy is Nancy Sands and Tommy. And Nancy Sinatra. Right. And so everything was great. Every night we were out eating out, or eating in, eating out on a, on an outdoor on the deck or whatever, whatever it was. And it was always me and Big Nancy, and Tommy and Nancy, the four of us. And I guess there was some columnist in Miami that wrote some stupid bullshit about who's that new foursome around town. Tommy Sands, the great new teenage idol, and Nancy Sinatra, his betrothed or something. Very salacious, nice. of course. Huh? Salacious, of course. What? Are, of yeah. course. Yeah. And who's that young guy with Nancy Sinatra? The big. Uh, they call her Nancy Sinatra, Nancy's mother. Well, it turns out that the night, the next night or two, was the night of the 
engagement party and it was one of those things I remember Buddy Hackett was there Stephen Eady were there I got some pictures Stephen Eady Gourmet whoever was there a number of notables yeah. it was a, just a beautiful party I think we had the top floor at the Fountain Blue Hotel or something with gorgeous outdoor decking it's the place was beautiful. Well, let's we'll get back to Nancy because you do record these boots are made for a walk. Oh, for sure. A little later on, after her Tommy You keep saying you got something for me, something you call love, but confess you've been a messin' where you shouldn't have been a messin'. And now someone else is getting all your best These boots are made for walking And that's just what they'll do One of these days these boots are gonna walk all over you They did that record with Nancy Sinatra. I mean, I was her husband's drummer, Tommy Sands. Tommy Sands, yeah. Uh, they were, you know, they had a 15-minute Hollywood marriage, whatever it was. Anyway, there are drummers out there that claim that they did that record with Nancy Sinatra. I got pictures of Warner Brothers handing me the gold record for that record, for Nancy's record. I've got Nancy's on tape. We did Ed Sullivan together. We did so many shows together where she told the world, Hal Blaine is my drummer man. She used to call me her drummer man. And that's how we met, because I was Tommy Sands' drummer when they got married. Right. After they divorced, and Nancy never was a singer, she was just a sweet little gal and Frank Sinatra's daughter. Yeah, right. <laughs> so we used Chairman to come, of the board's daughter, but sure. <laughs> we used to come to, to this town all the time because Frank bought them all homes. In Palm Springs, yeah. On Frank Sinatra Drive. Yeah. It's actually in Rancho Mirage. Nancy's mother, we, we call Big Nancy, she's still kicking it. God bless her. Is she still alive? She just turned 100, that's what it is. Did she? Just turned 100. Wow. Just the sweetest lady in the world. A doll face. Now let's hear how Hal came up with one of the hookiest and coolest drum intros ever recorded. Let's talk a little bit about, um, you played on many, many hit records, but there's one that I think, you know, kind of like... The, the luck of the army, the luck of Tommy Sands, the luck of Be My Baby. Well, that's a perfect example. Like you couldn't have picked a better example. Be My Baby was a, obviously a major hit song. It also changed the rock drumming world. For it did. Boom, 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 boom. I mean, who doesn't and, know that? No, I know. And, and uh, the start of it, it's hard to completely remember, but Phil, that was one of Phil Spector's sessions, and it was um, Ronnie Spector, who was married to Phil at the time. In fact, I recently, we recently redid, Ronnie and I was appearing, Ronnie was appearing at the NAM show in Anaheim. Oh, last January. Oh, and they asked me to recreate and play background with her on Be My Baby. Mm -hmm. 
And I said, sure, of course, you know. They paid me a lot of money. It turned out that they had built a little out, small outdoor stage. It was raining. The wind was blowing like a hurricane. I was there. I remember. Oh, well. Yeah. It's just last, know, yeah, last year, yeah. You know what I'm talking about. It was the only day it was really bad. The rest of the days were wasn't too bad. Probably, but, yeah. yeah. But it, it, it does happen in January, so. You know. Anyway, what happened was that uh, it was a nice reunion to see Ronnie. You yeah. Know, she'd been married for 20 years to this guy or whatever. And uh, seemed like a happy camper. She still was singing her buns off. You saw it. Anyway, they didn't even have stairs for me to walk up to to get on the stage. They, had, they were picking me up, three, four guys, and lifting me and putting me on the stage. Liberty DeVito was her road drummer. He was backing her, and he wasn't even supposed to be there. But Liberty, a lot of people didn't know, maybe I shouldn't even talk about this, but Liberty's going deaf. And he's over playing voluminously as loud as he can play for some reason. Maybe because of his deafness, I don't know. I tried to send him a letter, I couldn't get his address. The address I had was no longer at this address. So when it came time to um, Ronnie, for Ronnie to come out, she came out, she introduced me, etc., etc., and you were there. And I did the intro, boom, to doom bang. And all of a sudden, Liberty joined right in and just chopped the whole goddamn thing. It was so loud, it was ridiculous. But, you know, being a pro, personally, I, said, I couldn't care less. They paid me a lot of money, probably a lot more money than he was getting. I even thought about paying him the money that I got. But going back to the original boom, ba boom, bang. Yes. Jack Nietzsche was Phil Spector's arranger. arranger. Mm -hmm. Nice guy. We were neighbors in the Hollywood Hills. And Jack's wife, Gracia, G R A C I A, Gracia Nietzsche, was Jack's wife. And she was one of the three original blossoms with um, Darlene Love, mm -hmm. Fanita James, and um, Gracia Nietzsche. When Jack Nietzsche got a little bit, maybe too big for his boots, I don't know, they got divorced. It was really a shame, because Gracia was just a quiet little homemaker. You know, she was just a sweetheart, sang great. And she started singing for some other big star. Anyway, getting back to the the arrangement, I mean that really changed the whole drumming world. That boom, 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 bang. Things were coming out. Everyone started copying that particular beat. Oh yeah. And people asked, of course, they asked me about that beat, and I tell them. It's possible that being the faker that I am, in my experience, and it's possible we were rehearsing on two and four, boom, ch, boom, boom, ch, boom, ch, boom, boom, ch. It's possible that when the red light went on and all of a sudden we started cutting it, I may have made a pass and dropped a stick or something on two, it didn't hit, 
but I hit on four. And being a professional that I am, when you make a mistake, if you do it every four bars or every eight bars... It's not a mistake it's anymore. It's not a mistake. <laughs> and that's how that happened. Phil loved it, of course. Phil loved me because Lenny Bruce was a dear friend of mine. Phil gave me that picture that's sitting in that in the toilet. And the reason it's in the toilet is because Lenny's, one of his big, big punch lines was, there I am in the toilet again. He used to say that all the time. He was just the nicest guy in the world. Yeah. Baby was a nationwide smash in 1964, and it firmly established Hal Blaine as a first-call studio drummer. Here's the story behind Hal's first Grammy record of the year. And also the other thing that I had was the Tijuana Brass horn. <laughs> That's right, because you uh, I also sold everything. you I did sold uh, everything. all of Herb Albert and the Tijuana exactly. Brass uh, exactly. stuff. Um, uh, Taste of Honey. Uh, Taste of Honey was my very first Grammy-winning record of the year. Yeah, yeah, totally And that's one of the great stories because we rehearsed it. We were at Gold Star. Larry Levine was was the engineer. Sweetheart of a guy, died much too young, had a bad heart. We sat in studio, it was the only studio at Gold Star, really. I guess we called it Studio A. We were set up, two on a brass, me and the guys, I was in the middle of the, the brass around me, the brass ring, whatever you call it. And uh, they would do that opening Obligato. Ba 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 da 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 ba ba Well, what was happening was that they would do the obligato. Ba da 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 da. Be a train wreck. Everybody was. This is when we started rolling. We rehearsed it perfectly. But once the red light was on, which was will be the name of my new book, I have a new book that's going to be coming out eventually called The Red Light Means Go. <laughs> I thought it was kind of a novel. That's a good name. Yeah. Anyway, so they played the obligato, the herb and the trombone and whatever. Every crash, crash, train wreck. Right. So, and I'm sitting there in the middle of everybody. So, about the third or fourth take, the take, go ahead, count it up, da 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 da, and I look right at the guys and I go boom, 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 diddle it, diddle it. I'm using brushes, eighth uh, triplets, 
Boom, 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 diddly, 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 everybody came in. Right. Perfectly. Well, that stuck. That became the hook. Right, right. Everybody loved it. Herb loved it. Everything worked out perfectly. some pet sounds some insight into brian wilson the beatles george martin and more al would know he, he worked with all of them so somebody else that you worked with which i think we both agree is an unqualified genius is brian wilson and absolutely you are the drummer for pet it's absolutely the same thing when brian decided he wanted a thurman on his records. We didn't know what a Thurman was. Nobody knew what a Thurman was. Until we found out. <laughs> right. That was something her, Brian had heard somebody say or heard it somewhere or saw it somewhere. I don't know. Maybe in a science fiction movie from the 50s. We, he did. Yeah. No. And that was it. We called it the only Thurman player that was listed in the Union book. And we got him. And he was happy to do whatever. Uh, and yet Brian was still the genius behind it all because he was the first one to do it. Right. And of course he was writing all these teenage songs that went right through your heart. You know, every one of those songs and all of his troubles with his father. You know, his father was a songwriter. His father wrote a song for uh, Lawrence Welk once. And that's what he wanted the Beach Boys to be like. Right. The bubble makers or something, I don't know what. And he came to every session practically and drove Brian nuts. And Brian finally banned him. Said, you know, I wasn't there, but to what he told him, but he never showed up again. Right. But what he did do was go out and hire another group called The Sunrays. Oh, that's right. Murray did, right. And we were doing their albums Mm -hmm. the same way, and they were big hits. So it's just a shame that father and son couldn't get together. But Murray was a drunkard. He was always had that booze in him. Smelled terrible of booze. He was a very weird guy, man. He'd come before each musician, get on one knee, say, Dear Lord, thank you, and make this musician's music, blah, 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 blah. And they were hits. They were big hits with this group, The Sunrays. They did, we did one or two albums. Um, they were major hits. Yeah, and but I'm they sure weren't the Beach Boys. They weren't the Beach Boys. No, and they weren't Brian Wilson. Of course not. Uh, you know, I mean, everybody recognizes what Brian but was but doing. But that's it with Brian. I mean, Brian was just a sweetheart. He never thought about a penny. That was all about the music. It was 
just the music, that's all it was. He wanted to hear it a certain way. Brian was not privy to reading music. As Carol Kay would say, he came in with his arrangements and he, there were no goddamn arrangements. Brian came in with Xerox sheets that he wrote in, start here, stop here, go back to here, and then play an ending here. And then he had the chords to the song. And we would run down the song with the chords he had written in, and a lot of times he would say, no, that's not the chord, play it different. And so they would change the chord, no, that's not it, play it different. That's it, that's it, mark it. And the guys would mark it on their little sheet of music that he had from the Xerox machine out of the office at Western. Carol Kay tells this whole story about how Brian came in with his arrangements and he's totally nuts. And she did not do all these records. It was Ray Pullman who did all those great records. But she did play on Good Vibrator. When When Ray died, she grabbed the Fender bass and said, don't worry about it, I'll handle it, you know. And they said, fine, you know, who cares? So let's talk a little bit about Good Vibrations. At the time, it was the most expensive single ever It was cut. unbelievable. We did something like 19 or 20 sessions. And sometimes they only lasted two and a half minutes. Two and a half minutes of uh, a session for the, for the, the... Brian would come in, sit at the piano, and say, let me hear the, tr- the saxophone and the trumpet, and I'm going to play this chord. And he would play a chord on the piano that he knew in his ears. And then he'd ask the guys to hold the note out and he would say, trumpet, come down to the next note, come down to the next note, to the next note, that's it. Leave it right there, be sure to mark that. And the trumpet player would mark it, of course. So anytime that chord was played, it was the chord he wanted. Right. And Brian, and if we had 12 men or 15 men sitting there with a three-hour session, and we had already done 12 or 13 minutes, and Brian would say, beautiful, thank you guys, thank you, thank you, we'll see you next time. We didn't even know the song. He didn't know that this we was going to be... Song. Brian was the one that knew the song. Right knew what he was going to be doing, what he wanted, and what he had to hear first. Uh-huh. Also, Brian was deaf in one ear. Yeah, yeah, from getting hit by his father. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that's what Liberty DeVito is going through right now, I'm told. Uh-huh. He's going deaf, if not already deaf. So Brian was always in competition with the Beatles, and you actually got a chance to work with uh, a couple of them as I well. I worked with all of them. They were terrific. There was no problems with the Beatles. Brian was afraid of the Beatles. He was afraid because they were all musical thinkers. I mean, if you've ever seen any... It was four, four against one. Well, that's, that's, I never looked at it that way. But they were doing... 
they were doing things that were almost classically trained. Well, they did have a great producer and arranger that oh, could help course, them do no. that in George Martin. But yeah, I with George so maybe Martin. maybe five against one. I worked with George several times, and he was just the sweetest guy in the world. Shocked me when he died because he was never a drinker that we knew of. No. We never saw him smoking cigarettes. None of the above, you know. And I did two major interviews with him at Capitol down in the basement. They paid me well. They sent a car for me. I mean, it was really, really nice. Um, but Brian, when Brian heard the big hit that the Beatles had. You mean Sergeant Pepper? Sergeant Pepper. That's what made Brian crazier than he was ever thinking about. Because he couldn't keep up. Because it was so amazing. Brian couldn't break it down the way he normally would hear certain things the way he wanted to hear them without having the power to say, no, change this, or do this, or do this, till they hit what he wanted. Whereas these guys came along with things Brian never heard of. If you've ever seen any of those specials about the Beatles and Sir George, and how these things came about, uh, it's just amazing. But it was also not contrived whatsoever, but it was also so reserved the way they did it. It was just wonderful. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. That's what I felt. Um, so that's kind of what made Smile unworkable at the time. Well, Smile just never happened. I mean, we did Smile, and for some reason it just... It never had the impact that Pet Sounds had. And Pet Sounds was not Pet Sounds. That was all eventually put together as Pet Sounds. But I never, I mean, between us, I never felt the genius of Pet Sounds. I felt the genius of Good Vibrations. Uh-huh. Well, God um, only knows is on there. Uh, well, what uh, I'm saying is, yeah, uh, uh, those songs. John B is on there. You are 87? I'm now 88. Are you 88? February 5th, right? February 5th. Uh. Next February 5th, I'll be 90 years old. <laughs> well, two fifth. 89. You got two more years. I am just a poor boy, though my story is seldom told. I 
squandered my resistance For a pocket full of mumbles Such are promises All lies and jest Still the man hears what he wants to hear And disregards the rest statues, the gold records on the wall. Uh, Guys like Hal Blaine don't really do it for the hardware. Uh, But just the same, it is nice to be recognized by one's peers. And in Hal's case, well, geez, just the sheer weight of numbers. It really tells a story here. Comedy has been a big part of my life, and my life has been one big joke. (laughs) Well, I don't know if I would say that. Let me just run a few statistics out. Forty number one singles. Forty number yeah, one singles. Probably a little more than that. A hundred, at least a hundred and fifty top ten singles. Yeah, there were more than that because I had I had about one hundred and sixty or one hundred and sixty-five gold records on the walls of my office of hit records that people gave me gold records. You know, it's amazing, and, and most importantly, the Grammy's most prestigious awards, Record of the Year, of which you won six years in a row for various artists right. and various Grammy songs, but you played, you right. were the drummer on on those records from 1966 to 1971. That's, amazing. It's, it's unfathomable. I, it's I, it's hard for years, me to wrap my head around. After all these years, I just received my eighth Grammy-winning record of the year was with, unfortunately, Glenn Campbell's recording that he wrote with Julian Raymond, fine composer. And I think the song is I'm Not Gonna Miss You. Very strange, kind of a sad story because of his Alzheimer's. Yeah. Also, it received not only the Grammy-winning record of the year, my fourth Oscar-winning background music in a film. It's just an amazing when I think about it. So I'm only talking about four Oscars, and I've probably done at least 25 Oscar-winning movies, you know. Right, right. I've probably done 150 or maybe 200... TV shows. Commercials. Oh, commercials, yeah. That were all, that received uh, whatever that award is. Oh, the Clio. The Clio. Mm -hmm. What else? Movies, television. I did so many television shows. Three's Company is still going today. You're I'm amazed. St- you're, you're still getting royalty checks on Three's Company? Is that what you're telling me, Hal? Well, I'm not. I wish I w- could say that. What we are getting, the union has set up a payment plan for all those companies to pay into a fund that they call some kind of distribution. And at the end of the year, fortunately, I get a couple of checks for 25 grand. Very nice. Can't beat that. Which is unbelievable. Yeah. Really unbelievable. Ah, oh, crackling rosy gate on board. We gonna ride till there ain't no more who go. Taking it slow. And Lord, don't you know. I'll have me a time with a poor man's lady. Itching on a twilight train. Finally, reluctantly, we wrap things up. 
But before I packed up my recorder and said my goodbyes, I had to turn things around for a minute and tell Hal a little of my story about his music and about what it meant to me. Well, you started off very poor yourself, but in 2000, you are inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, with the first Sidemen. I think it's you and Scotty Moore. What was that like? The first Sidemen that was ever in, inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame was Hal Blaine. Right. And people say to me, my God, you, Scotty Moore, Earl Palmer. I think there's to, only five. Yeah, there's never another one or two. I just can't remember. Booker T, Jim Jamerson, somebody like that. It wasn't Jamerson, came later. I don't think it was Booker T. But it's pretty amazing. After yeah. a career oh, in music. That but the point is that what I, the point that I would make was, well, the only reason I was the first was because my last, my last name started with B. <laughs> and everybody would laugh about it. You know, and they'd say, well, I guess you're right. But you, you deserve, you know, I say, well, we all deserve. Everybody has their thing that they do. Yeah. Or we wouldn't be here. Yeah. Yeah, but, you know, uh, I think you agree with what we kind of touched on a couple of times, is that you've, you've really been lucky in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. But you were well prepared. You educated yourself sitting in that theater as a That's kid a lot of it, every yeah. day and seeing those things. Uh, you took the chance when the chance, the door opened. You sure. walked through it. Um, you were prepared. You were willing to experiment or do whatever anybody wanted to do to try to enhance the song That's and exactly you played to the song I liked your story about the what is your motivation same as an actor thinks of, of course. because that is how you play to the song I've listened to a lot of your stuff over the last uh, month or so uh, I, I grew up with it I mean I think I relate to you the story of Galveston and that you know my parents were got divorced and this was my my father went back to Houston sure. and I went there in summer and I got to see Galveston the songs playing on the radio sure. it just it all like comes together to creates this the real you know when they talk about the soundtrack of your life that's exactly what that is Taste of Honey is another perfect I example. I, you know, that I, when I was ten years old, and for some reason I loved Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass. Don't ask me why. The funny thing is, I'm going to tell you this, is that I was embarrassed to admit that I really loved all those L.A. kitschy, kooky songs that came out, like the Monkees or the Association or the Fifth Dimension or that sort of stuff. Until I found out that it was the Wrecking Crew that played on all of them, then all of a sudden I was like, "Oh, now I know why I now I know why I like uh -huh. it because it was <laughs> so good playing." So, I just want to thank you, Hal Blaine, for spending the time with us here at the Rock well, and Roll Archaeology pleasure, Project. Um, I think uh, you know all the accolades that I see in your house here that you've gotten throughout your life are well deserved. So. Our hats off to you. Thank and, you. Uh, Thank you very much.
Galveston I still hear your sea winds blowing I still see her dark eyes glowing She was 21 When I left Galveston Well, there you have it. Hal Blaine. What an amazing musician. I'm Christian Swain, and this has been Deeper Digs in Rock, a production of Rock and Roll Archaeology and sponsored by the Avidus Zildjian Company. Thanks again to Mr. Hal Blaine, and thank you for listening. Keep up the rockin', and please come back soon. Deeper Digs in Rock, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.